When we think about certain moments in our lives, we are marked by particular ones. We obviously remember the actual event, the sights and smells, the sounds, and even some of the dialogue that took place. These moments shaped how we see the world, how we've seen the world, how we saw life and how we respond in certain situations. If you were to tell someone this specific instance in your life, you would want to convey even the smallest detail so they could in some form or fashion experience through your narration what transpired. I'm sure as I speak of this now, you could probably tell me a few stories that have stamped themselves in your own mind and every detail would be intact. As we continue to go through the Gospel of Mark, imagine for a moment how the Apostle Peter, who was an eyewitness to all of this, was conveying this to Mark. Peter would have wanted every single detail, as much as he could remember, transcribed in Mark's narrative. This would have been life-changing for Peter, obviously, and as well as for Mark. Though he was simply a recipient of the stories, it was so altering to his own story that he risked his own life to pin this narrative of the life and ministry of Jesus. Mark would have been writing this during Roman rule and stories of this Jesus who had just ascended and he, he and the Father sent the Holy Spirit to empower Christ's disciples. This story would have been looked down upon and shared at threat of incarceration or even death. Let me ask this question to us as the church. How important is this story of Jesus to you? Would you be willing to be rejected, to be persecuted, and even killed for the story of Christ? Is it such a life-changing story that you want to do whatever it takes to remember every single detail in the Gospels? Does it affect us at all that the God-man Jesus Christ really did live here on earth 2,000 years ago? Is this story so real to us as the church that our desire will be to tell, to tell it so that the whole world may know this Christ? Today's passage is going to feel a little familiar if you've spent any time in church. There are, there are stories in all four gospel accounts of where Jesus did something miraculous and so unbelievable that man's mind could not comprehend it. So this is a spoiler alert for today. At the end of chapter 4, where we're going to be today, Jesus performs a miracle that involves the wind and the waters of the Sea of Galilee. A great windstorm arises and is seconds away from sinking the ship Jesus and his disciples are in. As Mark narrates this for us, there are details that are included in this telling that in the field of professional writing, they are known as irrelevant details. Usually a story leaves anything like this out because it doesn't move the, the, the narrative forward in any way. So these are called irrelevant details. 
The prominent 20th century biblical scholar Vincent Taylor says, particularly about this passage today in Mark, some details are so unnecessary to the story that it bears the marks of genuine reminiscence. Even if Peter looked bad in the eyewitness accounting to Mark, he did not want to spare one jot or tittle. Let's look at Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. The title there says, Jesus calms a storm. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But, but he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm, and he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's look at verse 35 of our passage today. Again, Mark reminds us that all that happens in chapter 4 seems to happen in one day. We can assume this from the text. It says, on that day when evening had come, that marks a day. And it gives us eyes to see that this is how Jews acknowledge the end of a workday, when evening comes. Jesus tells them as he sits in the boat finishing teaching that he wants to begin crossing to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now pay attention to this. Think for just a moment about the implications of this one verse. The workday, according tr to tradition, was over. Jesus wants to begin crossing this large body of water at night. Other than maybe a few lamps that they, they would have merely had the moonlight, if not blocked by clouds, to help them navigate across. Let's look at verse 36 as it helps transition us. There's no objections, no uh, persuasions by the disciples, or no uh, disciples abandoning Jesus at this moment. They do exactly as he asks and they leave the crowd, and they take Jesus just as he is in the boat. And here is, in verse 36, is where we see an irrelevant detail. The end of verse 36 says that other boats were with him. Why does that matter? How does that move the narrative forward in any way? It doesn't. But Peter was not sparing on the details of what he saw. Let's look at some context in verse 37. If you, ever, if you ever took a trip to Israel today and you went to where Capernaum once stood, you would be at the edge of the Sea of Galilee. You would be warned by those who are residents if you had a desire to cross by boat for some reason of the storms that, would, that could whip up without a warning at any, at any time and they would capsize large boats. Because of where this large lake sits, the Sea of Galilee, where it sits, it is surrounded by mountains, thus being a type of funnel for winds that blew in from the Mediterranean Sea and even the deserts 
in the east. So we, we see this happen here in verse 37. Again, this is happening at night. A great windstorm arises and the waves grow so furious that they begin breaking over the side of the ship that they were in and the boat begins to fill up with water. Why does this matter? It meant certain death. Imagine how fearful you might have been if you were one of these disciples. And boats in that day weren't what we see now. It would have been, yes, a long and large boat, but it was no match for this great windstorm, for the breaking waves and the filling up of the boat. Let's look at verse 38. The, the, this is the response of the disciples. Jesus is asleep in the stern of the boat. And then here again, we see an irrelevant detail on a cushion. Why did we need to know that? Because Peter wants us to be, he wants us to truly believe what's being told here. He's asleep on a cushion and they awake him. Why would they wake Jesus? Because simply they were afraid of dying. In the mood this is said in the original language, in, in the Greek, this is less about trying to wake him and more about rebuking him. Can you imagine rebuking the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God Almighty, and you say, how can you be asleep right now? How dare you sleep during the last few moments of our lives? We can't miss this in verse 38. How is Jesus sleeping during this squall? Here's the answer. Because he has perfect trust in his heavenly father. He shows no fear, so much so that he can sleep during this storm. Let's look at Jesus' response in verse 39. This is a contrast from the disciples' response to Jesus' response. It is not fear or anger or indifference. I used to, I'm, I'm going to be completely honest with you. When I wasn't feeling well at night when I was little, I usually didn't go to mom's side of the bed. I would usually go to my dad's side. Because my dad was a very light sleeper. And when I was like, dad, I don't feel good. He'd be like, oh, and he'd like rush me to the bathroom because he knew I was probably going to lose my lunch everywhere. Okay. And, when you, and here's something, you do not wake a Mexican mama. Okay. Especially when she's been making tortillas all day. Okay. You don't wake mom. Dad, dad instilled that in us as kids. You do not wake mom. Come and wake me 100% of the time. Your mom needs to sleep. Okay. Have parents, have you ever experienced this? You're dead asleep and your kid comes to the side of the bed and you're like, ah, you know, I mean, imagine here for just a moment, Jesus being awakened by the disciples. And then he gets up and he doesn't say, he, Jesus doesn't rub his eyes and like, what, what do you need? He doesn't chastise them or condemn them. Here's his response. It is authority. Jesus responds with authority because Jesus is God. He has the power to speak to the wind and the waves and command them to stop. I love the way the New American Standard says, it, when, when it's quoting Jesus, it says, hush, peace, 
be still. He doesn't even speak to the disciples yet. He speaks to the wind and to the waves, and immediately the storm stops because the Son of God has spoken. Now, it would be easy for me to ask Kristen to come up and start playing a really sad part on the piano and, and to bring the lights low. I don't know how we would do that here in our building. To bring the lights low and for me to get teary-eyed and to ask you very pensively, can Jesus stop the storms in your life? And here's my response to any pastor who would preach that message. Of course he can. Of course he can stop the storms in your life. But like we just sang, he may not. Storms may come and we may feel dread and terror because we feel like this is it. And if we truly trust in a sovereign king who sees all things, who knows all things, who allows all things, then nothing comes through his sovereign hands. With coming to us first, it has to come through his hands. Of course he can stop the storms that come to your life. And I want you to feel like you are seen by the God of the universe in the midst of every storm in your life. Listen, Christian, listen. There is purpose behind every storm. There is purpose behind every suffering. There is purpose behind every sorrow that you experience as a Christian. Here's what the purpose is, is to make you more like Jesus. People ask me often, as a pastor, especially young people, they say, will you help me navigate? Will you help me know what God's will is for my life? And I'll say, yes, I know it. And they're like, you know God's will for my life? And I'll say, yes, if you're a Christian, God's will for your life is to become more like Christ. It doesn't matter what job you work. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter any of those things. Your, God's will for your life is to be more like Christ. No matter what comes your way, no matter what storm comes and threatens to collapse your whole life, of course he can stop the storms. And you might be fearful and maybe even lost hope this morning. But you can trust that Jesus trusted the Father. Listen to this. This is gospel. Jesus trusted the Father perfectly in your place. This is why we need the substitutionary life of Christ. This was happening in Mark chapter 4. Jesus was asleep on the boat, perfectly trusting his father in the place of those disciples, in your place and in mine. We need his perfect life. The last part of 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 13 says this, if we are faithless, listen, it doesn't say when we are faithless. Or maybe at some point we might be faithless. It says, if we are faithless, he remains what? Faithful. 
If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Listen, the faith he gives us, he continues to grow in us by the power of the gospel. God promises to you, if he places the faith in you, he will help it to grow. He will not leave you alone. And you know what that help is? Oftentimes, is suffering and sorrow and storms in our life. I would... Church, I would do you great damage for you to come in here Sunday after Sunday and you hear some go-lucky story or pat you on the back and say you're doing great and send you back out. But if I don't give you the mind of Christ with his word to bear witness to what's happening in your life, then what am I doing? Am I simply wanting to grow a church? That's not, my, that's not my goal. My goal is to, to have people connect so much to Christ by his spirit that they're going out into the community and saying, my life was falling apart and Jesus entered my life and it didn't get a whole lot better, but I have peace. I have hope that things won't always be this way. Let's look at verse 40. This is after Jesus calms the storm. He asks two questions. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? The legacy standard says, why are you so cowardly? Why does the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, ask not one but two questions here? He does this to get to the heart of the matter, to reveal the answer. And listen, the answer was standing right in front of them. He asks a question, and the answer is standing right in front. The light of the world was standing there in front of them. Let's look at the last verse, verse 41. What is the response of the disciples? Their response is not, oh, okay, I'm okay now. Thanks for doing that, Jesus. Thanks for stopping the storm. It is, listen, they were afraid when the storm was threatening to break up the boat and to, for them to die. And after Jesus does this, there is sheer terror. That is their response. The, dis the disciples respond this way. They say, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They did not come to a conclusion and sit back and become arrogant or complacent. They were in utter shock. Much like we see in the Old Testament, Job, when he's faced with the Lord in that great windstorm. He says, my, uh, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen. This is the fear of the Lord. And this is, listen, look at me for just a moment, church. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's what we need as God's people. We need true godly wisdom. Men, listen to me. For those of you who are married, you need wisdom to care for your wife and for your kids. If you work a job, you need wisdom in your job. 
College students, you need wisdom. You need to gain wisdom as you go throughout your college career. I tell my kids often, don't do the same thing I did. Don't wait so long to learn wisdom. Don't be a fool for so long like me. I've pled with my children, especially my sons, sitting at the kitchen table saying, please don't let it take so long. Don't be a fool for so long. Learn wisdom now. Learn it now. And you know what the beginning of it is? You know what the doorway of it is? It's the fear of the Lord. It's to have a right relationship with him in his son by his spirit. It's not to shrink back and think he's going to kill me at any moment. It is a deep reverence that he is God and I am not. That he is creator and I am created. Listen, God is holy and unlike us. How often do we forget that? That with a word, the Son of God silences the storm. I want to end our time thinking about this. If you've been around, around for a while now here at Redeemer, you know we looked at the book of Jonah in the Old Testament, the, the minor prophet Jonah. We walked through it slowly for about nine weeks, and we, saw the, we tried our very best to see the gospel on every page of Jonah. In chapter 1, God gives Jonah a command to go to Nineveh and preach repentance. Jonah goes the opposite way. He buys a ticket to Tarshish and gets on a boat to go the exact opposite way of Nineveh. And then beginning in verse 4 of chapter 1, it, it won't be on the screen for you, just pay attention to this. The Bible says that the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. As the, movie, as the story moves forward, excuse me, the sailors begin calling out to their pagan gods because they were afraid to, to die. Jonah was asleep in the ship. And the sailors wake him, and they say, call out to your God. And then Jonah reveals who he is in verse 9 of chapter 1. Jonah says that he fears the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And the parallels continue for us in Jonah chapter 1 and in Mark chapter 4. And the more you read this, this portion of Jonah begins to look like Mark. And you see the great story, the greater story being laid out for us. Dr. Tim Keller argues in his book, King's Cross, that both portions, Jonah and Mark, though one in the Old Testament and the other in the New Testament, have the, almost the exact same elements. If you were to read both stories in parallel, except one. Jonah tells the sailors that if they throw him into the sea, which would mean certain death, they will live. Knowing the implications, they follow through, and the storm stops immediately. Listen, the last verse of Jonah chapter 1, verse 16, says that after they did so, the storm stops. They throw Jonah into the sea, the storm stops. And these pagan sailors feared the Lord and made vows and sacrifices to him. Now here's the one thing that we're missing in Jonah that we see in Mark. In Mark chapter 4, 
the disciples don't throw Jesus into the Sea of Galilee, Galilee to stop the storm. Because Jesus is the true and better Jonah. Listen to this. Look at me for just a moment. Because he is the true and better Jonah, Jesus willingly, in agreement with the Godhead, throws himself headlong into the storm. Because he is the true and better Jonah, he throws himself headlong into this tempestuous sea, into this great windstorm, suffering at the hands of men, being nailed on a, on a Roman cross in a wretched, wretched way. Jesus willingly throws himself into this storm. Listen, to face the penalty that you and I deserved. This is the Son of God, wrapped in flesh, Jesus the Messiah, the greater Jonah, who came and faced the greatest storm in history, in your place and in mine. When we see this bigger picture, when we take a step back and see this here, the storms that we face in life, though they are real and painful, are like a blip on the radar of who God is and what he can do. When this story captivates us as his people, every storm in life, though real and even painful, and is no match for the one who calmed the greatest storm in history by his very life, by his death, and the power of his resurrection. Charles Spurgeon, the great Prince of Preacher, says this, when black clouds gather most, the light is more brightly revealed to us. When the night lowers and the storm comes, the heavenly captain is always closest to his crew. Listen, we can say wholeheartedly with the Apostle Paul, Romans 8.28. Kyle, can you throw that on the screen for us? Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose. And that word all there is all. Everything that comes to your life is for the glory of God and for your good. No matter how painful it is, no matter how great the storm might feel, it is for the glory of God, for the good of his people. The question is, do you trust him? Who do you say that he is? I'm going to ask the band to go ahead and come up. We do our best to make an invitation every week. The first invitation is this. If you are not in Christ this morning, if you honestly didn't know if you were a Christian or not, listen, no matter how great the, the storm you might face right now, there is a greater storm that is coming. And if you find yourself outside of Christ, you will face his eternal wrath for eternity.
you will pay. You will face the greatest storm that you've ever seen. Listen, there are people who ongoingly reject the love of Christ. They'll offer it to them weekly, daily, and they will stand before him. And that day, on judgment day, they will have a king-size headache. So any storm outside of Christ is no storm compared to the storm that is coming. If you are in Christ this morning, here's the hope that we have. Do we believe that every storm that comes our way, that Jesus faced the greatest storm in our place? By his perfect life, by his substitutionary death, and by his grave-robbing bodily resurrection and ascension where he sits at the right hand of the Father now. Every storm that comes our way begins to get smaller and smaller and smaller at the voice of the great shepherd who says, peace, be still. Let's pray.